Welcome, everybody, to the Hot Stove Society on Cairo Radio. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And do we have our, uh, do we have our audience here today, Sean? Let's, uh, let's listen in. The oh arena crowd. crowd. We are so busy. Louder, today. louder. We, want, we won't come on stage unless we hear more applause. Oh, there yes. The stadium is full. Yeah. I'm Tom Douglas, and uh, I, we are here at the Hot Stove Society Kitchens in downtown Seattle at the beautiful Hotel Andra. Fourth and Virginia. Uh, we'd love to see you down here sometime. Today we're taping without an audience, so you won't hear. Terry, you're off the audience motivation bandwagon. I, had, yeah, I can't possibly have a motivation. There's yeah. nobody here. There's nobody here. <laughs> Pamela's here. here. Our producer is here. here. Our technical producer, Sean McFadden, is here. And Chef, Chef Annie, Annie Elmore is here in the house. So That's a good crowd. Hopefully she's making us breakfast this morning. She made you some rice. Oh, great. Fantastic. <laughs> Just what I need. Uh, boy, we have a two hours of deliciousness today. Uh, fall baking to satisfy the ease of quick breads. I'm going to yep. change that around a little bit and say fall baking, a satisfying way to use quick breads. Yes. A tasting panel. Uh, t- we haven't done a Hot Stove Society tasting panel in a while. And, uh, you know, we get all these questions about what to buy. You go to the grocery store, you see 10, 15 different soy sauces. You know, some are 3 bucks, some are 30 bucks. So today we've got all of these lined up in front of us, and we're going to try and see what we think. And You know, honestly, I, I don't like when people have like 10 soy sauces in their kitchen because they can't possibly use them before they expire, oxidize right. and expire, right? So uh, we're going to show you which ones. Uh, maybe you need two, a dark and a light or something like that. So we'll, And if we'll you had them for over three months or four months in your in your cupboard, mix them together and use them in the next couple of weeks. Or put a, make a tea for your yard or something like that. <laughs> nice. nice. A tea for your yard. But, you know, it's, they just oxidize and all of a sudden you're putting this year-old soy sauce on top of a very expensive piece of fish right. or, or something. You don't want to do that. So buy them in the smallest containers possible and then uh, turn them over more quickly. Looking for an alternative protein? Let's check out Cheeks. Pamela loves her some halibut cheeks. So do. And, uh, you, but you like cheeks of all sorts. Beef, veal. I just bought cod. That's why I cod put it. cheeks. Yeah, yeah, they're glistening, perfect little jewels. Can't wait. I can't wait either. And now uh, Pamela is also going to lead us through the, the Beaujolais classifications. You know, this is the time of year when you get Beaujolais Nouveau. That's right. Right? They've just harvested. They get it all crushed and pressed and Put out that young juice, and it's never been my thing. Me neither. But I no. love vintage Beaujolais. Oh yeah, uh, and a lot of people never give it time to like age up a little bit. Uh, people well, you drink it buy, in that you, first year. You don't age Beaujolais Nouveau; you age the other Beaujolais. Yeah, I understand, but a lot of people don't. Is my right, point. Right, right. Yeah, they think it has to be drunk super young, and it, it's delicious young, but it's uh, it's even more interesting older. How to assemble a cheese board for your holidays coming your way, and turn your cocktail. Like, you know how uh, my wife loves to make cocktails and right, all right. sorts? Mine too. And I hadn't really thought about this. Turn your extra cocktail, if, that, if there is such a thing, uh, into meat brine. And so the only person I know in the world that would do something like that is Pamela because <laughs> she's a, a wussy drinker. She, like, she takes two drinks or two sips out of a fancy cocktail and it's like, oh, that's so delicious. And then it just sits there on the table. Really, and, you, and and she's off into the wine world. Yeah. Most people Saving I know, no, most people I know who make a cocktail can't wait to have another one. Jackie, my wife, is very much <laughs> that way. And of course, at the end of the show, the wrapping up the two hours, uh, we're going to have food for thought, rub with love, tasty trivia, just super fun. And I believe today our victim 
is going to be Chef Annie Elmore. Absolutely. Ooh. So, yeah, we're going I wouldn't to, call her a victim. We're going no. to crush her like the pea she is. Wow. Isn't that right, Annie? Oh, she's laughing at us. Like, uh, <laughs> no way, laughing. Dude. No way. All right, my taste of the week. Um, this kind of goes along with what we were just talking about with soy sauce. Uh, you know, you buy stuff, you see it in the store, and you kind of buy things to kind of have in your pantry. Like, right. I always keep a can of black beans, a can of garbanzo beans. I keep a couple of cans of uh, diced tomatoes. Sure. You, know, you know, just little things. Yeah. I keep a can of coconut milk. But I sometimes you never get to them. Right. So uh, I had smoked a whole pork butt for Jackie's birthday, pork tacos, uh-huh. and I had half of it left over, and I diced it up and put it in the fridge, and, and um, after our long week that we've had this week, sure. uh, I got home and I saw two quarts of pork butt chopped and ready to go already six days in the fridge, so I pulled it out, smelled it, it was all fine, and then I, I sauteed an onion, I put the, the little chunks of pork butt in, and then I got it into my pantry drawers, and I just looked at the dates on things. Everything was still a year out, but sure. what, whatever. I put a can of coconut milk in. I put a can of garbanzo beans in, a can of diced tomatoes in. And then uh, my favorite little simmer sauce is from Maya Kamal. Yes, and there's a, there's I a love bunch of, those products. Yeah, they're really good. Love and them. there's a bunch of different flavors. I honestly, sad to say, can't remember which one I used. I think it was like coconut curry of some sort. So that was kind of my baseline flavor. I put a big uh, heaping tablespoon of harissa in there, so it had a little kick, and that gave me some pepper. Just kind of stewed it up. Sounds delicious. The only thing I'm, I'm questioning on this is the tomato with the coconut. I'm not yeah. familiar with tomato and coconut together. Absolutely delicious. I mean, Alvin Benoya made I, I, it I famous over at, uh, what was the restaurant in Fremont that he was the chef at for years, the one on the Fremont, just... Ponte's. Ponte's. Yeah, Alvin yeah. Benoya, that, his Brazilian coconut tomato stew was, seafood stew oh, was... See, I've never put coconut Very, uh, very famous, yeah. Uh, anyway, turned out delicious. And it was yeah. all stuff I kind of had in the house. Right. And I just am encouraging people to kind of take a look at your pantry, Go through it. It's right. a, think of it as a shopping opportunity. So next time you're at the store, you can rebuild your pantry. Refrain yourself from going shopping one day yeah. and go through your cupboard. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. So it was just interesting to use all this canned stuff and then uh, have it be really delicious. The thing is you buy the good canned stuff to start with, which is I try. another secret of... But, you know, you it's know, S&W garbanzo beans. It's... Muir, Muir head or Muirfield uh, diced right. tomatoes. You know, it's, it's nothing fancy. Okay. Cool. But the Maya Kamal sauces, if you haven't tried them, they're a great little simmer sauce. Well, my taste of the week is a little trip down to Hillsburg, California, and um, went to this place called Single Thread. And if you want to treat yourself or your spouse or your better half or somebody to one of the most memorable experiences, this is definitely one of the places to do it at. Um, recently, well, we had this reservation for two years with friends of ours, Kevin and Mary Case, who were very kind. And uh, we went down there. We had a reservation for two years, and we had to redo the reservation a few times. But we finally got there, and oh, my God, what an incredible experience. It is absolutely memorable, very high-influence Japanese-French. So mostly Japanese, but with all the French, lots of French technique mixed into it. Uh, the food was absolutely delicious in terms of texture. I mean, first look, the presentation, absolutely outstanding. They put Detail in everything. I mean, the plates are made by somebody they know in Japan from their stay in Japan. The, every detail in that place is incredible. And the food came out very highly sushi-oriented to start, 
you know, 17 different little appetizers or uh, amuse-bouche mm-hmm. in sushi style. Beautiful presentation. But most importantly, the taste were absolutely outstanding. There was Yeah, it doesn't do any good to be all fancy if it's not, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's not delicious. Which, unfortunately, um, if I, you know, in our experience around traveling around the world, it has happened many times that, you know, there was no backup to the actual beautiful entry to a restaurant sometimes. Mm-hmm. So in this case, the whole thing had a lot of soul. Lots of, you could see the passion in everything that, that was surrounding the place from the wife who's the farmer. So they have a farm. They sell vegetables from the farm. They also produce all the vegetables for the restaurant. All the flowers, you know, she takes care of the decoration for the flowers. And he is the chef. Um, and, you know, trained in France, in Michel Bras, and other places, many places in Japan. Really, um, I just can't say enough of this is when fancy becomes worth going to worth paying for it, really, yeah. really paying for it and been going there for a very special experience. Well, that's called the single thread and it's in Healdsburg or Healdsburg, yeah. And they have another restaurant which is vegetarian vegan, less than two and a half blocks away. Beautiful space, very modern, um, modern modern mixed and absolutely fantastic food as well. Um, so I recommend that for another stay. I Sounds mean, like uh, we're getting on a plane, huh, Hinkley? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, yeah, I would that definitely. That Alaska flight to Santa Rosa has got our name on it. It's really easy to get to there, and All right. I recommend it. Yeah, your fall baking should include some sweet and savory quick breads, and we're going to talk about that when we come back on Cairo. You're in the middle of the hot stove kitchen, 97.3 FM. Cornbread said, now that's all right. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. I'll be ready. Give me a bread and butter woman who only wants the simple thing. Give me a bread and butter woman who likes her meat and potatoes. Good juicy tomatoes. Juicy tomatoes. Give him a bread. Okay, here we are. It's the Hot Stove Society Kitchen. You're in it. We're thankful for that. Hopefully you're in your garden or your kitchen or your car or wherever you are listening away and learning something, uh, exploring a new idea in the kitchen. Um, just having a having a ball with and food the oven and wine, is on. and, and it the oven's warm yeah, in the I kitchen. Know. That's it's, what I hear from listeners. It's while they're cooking dinner, yeah, on the weekend. Perfect. So nice, perfect. And we wish you would uh, uh, kind of make dinner for us sometime. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Just, you know the the four tomatoes came in. Four tomatoes and a what? Four four guys and a tomato. Four guys and a tomato came in, and they made us lunch. And it yeah, was that was yeah. really nice. Yeah, awesome. They also, uh, yeah, we take lunch. They also had a little something, something from Miss Pam Hinckley, I think. So, That's true. <laughs> saying, uh, your fall baking should include uh, some sweet and savory quick breads. Pamela, you know that I have a fascination with this because um, I just think it's something that's still missing out of our grocery stores that you can in the marketplace in for Europe, sure, all over the place. But savory quick breads. Right. So you know we're used to things like. Um, Maybe almost like a banana bread being right. a quick bread, right? Or, but very little opportunity. See, I, I, I consider banana bread being sweet bread, not savory. But it's a quick bread. It's considered right. a quick bread. It's like right. you mix it all together. You, there's no yeast. There's right. no, right. you know, right. right? There's no, no nothing. I think quick breads generally are baking powder or baking soda based. Right. And that's, so, where, that's where you get a little bit of that rice and that's all you get. And that's all you need for yeah, that type of bread. Need, yeah. So I've always wanted to do a little bit more savory version and Jackie... Uh, the other day did one. I think, did she bring some to you? Did you have some yeah, of her, yeah. 
her onion, bacon, and cheese. It was six, I liked it more than you did. Yeah. And I was thinking of it as a snack with wine. That's the perfect time to just have that little nibble. See, that kind of bread, I think of it for breakfast with a poached egg right on top. Ooh, That's what yes. I did with it. Is I, she made this nice loaf, lots of cheese, lots of bacon, browned onions, and then it was just a typical kind of quick bread batter. Yeah. yeah. And then put it all together, baked it off, got it nice and brown on the outside. And I ate it, and I'm like Pam, it just didn't do much for me right? Uh, from the quick bread angle of things or from, say, a cheese plate or wine, uh, wine bread. But when I pan fried it the next morning in butter, and <laughs> <laughs> well, hello. hello, and got a nice little toast on it, um, and it would have been good with an egg right on top. Yeah, I didn't steak, do yeah. that. Yeah. But uh, that was interesting to me, and you could do that with any of these quick breads. If you just take some of the sugar out right. of the mix. That's what I would do. I mean, that, to me, I'm not a big sweet for breakfast. I'm not, you know, that kind of heavy sugar. I'm not very good at that. But I like to uh, take down the sugar, and it's easy to do. Just take down the sugar. Uh-huh. That's all you have to do. Because the, the cake is actually leavened by baking powder, or what we, like we said. You don't need to worry about that. It will still be working fine. The only thing you have to worry about in those cakes is the moisture, the heavy moisture, to make sure some of it disappears so it actually bakes. Right. But other than that, you don't have to worry about that. So when you say that moisture from what? Well, for example, mushroom. Okay. You know, when, when if you you're adding, mushroom. yeah. So you saute should saute your, the mushroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah saute your mushroom on the side, add them to your batter, bake the whole bread, and you'll have a wonderful bread. Yeah. Now, if you take your mushroom and throw them in your bread, you're going to have a gooey, unbaked center of your bread. It's never going to cook because the, the mushroom keeps rendering their water and that just right, because a pound of mushrooms, let's just say, <coughs> is 14 ounces of water. Right. And, and yeah. So. It's 90% of water, so yeah. you're going to get na- Same as if you were trying to do zucchini or cucumber. It's much preferable to cook those items, to seal them really quickly ahead of time, and then put them in your batter. Because I see many recipes where... You put zucchini, like in zucchini bread, you put zucchini raw. Yeah, raw. just raw. And I well, think that, those recipes are adjusted, I think, for that water weight. Oh, when, when you for see. the moisture that yeah, right. the raw zucchini would adjusted for have. it, but yeah. still, I think you get a better product if you... And you also get more flavor, because zucchini by itself... That's a good point. Zucchini by itself is... You know, it's not it's nothing. Yeah, it's nothing. It's a it's water with a green shell on it. Uh, so let's go into other possible combinations that would drive you crazy when you had them because that's what Pamela wants. So to me, if it's pear season, right? Right. Uh, oh, you, you good idea. Easily kind of roast pears or red wine poached pears or something like that, and then uh, chop them up in a way that they're not minced. Right, it's not pear sauce that you're putting into Correct. the bread. That's Correct. a whole different angle. Right. But I want chunks of pear, and then I'm going to add something like lemon thyme or winter savory or some other herb that matches up with the flavor profile. Even cheese would be good. A, a little uh, dolce, uh, gorgonzola dolce. Yeah. yeah. Although I don't like blue cheese cooked into things too much. I love blue cheese, like when I put it on a big cracker. But I really don't love. Well, you could do a, like a, a blue cheese pizza you could do a, or a sheep cheese. You know, aged sheep cheese. That That's would be, better. That would yeah. be a little bit stinky, and you know, yeah, like the flag sheep from yeah. uh, Beecher's is exactly. a really nice uh, sheep sh- milk yeah. cheese. But you could, you know, what you could do with those pears is go, is do lines, uh, slice pear instead of doing dice. You so do, you put half your batter in. So you put half your batter. You put your slice pear that have been caramelized or or, or baked, and then you put your cheese on top of that. Then you put more butter on t- uh-huh. batter on top of that, and then you finish with pear on top. 
and you bake your cake like that. Mm. And that would be a very... That'd be pretty. So every time you slice, you actually have pear in every slice. Right. And that, to me, is more of a, of, of a wine-tasting kind of cake. Right. You know, it would be a fun little thing to have for your guests. Because, you know, in a wine-tasting, you've literally bought the wine. There's, you haven't put any effort in. So it's always nice when you have something like that. Correct. To show a little bit of effort if right. you're having friends over. Oh, you know, the wines are great, but I made this cake. Right, right, right. right? So, no, that's cool. What other combinations uh, would intrigue you? I want to do cranberry. Yeah, I was going to say dried um, fruit. Pistachio. Sweet or savory? Not too sweet. A little bit, though. Uh-huh. What so wine goes with cranberry? Are you, maybe you're drinking some uh, black book. <laughs> well, I would think Gamay, talking about Beaujolais. Yeah. I think a light Gamay would be so the a theme combination today. for that. Yeah. I would also think Pinot Gris would be a good, something like a white a Pinot wine. Gris yeah. would be mm-hmm. a nice match to that. But I would take the cranberry and I would cook them gently, quickly in a syrup of sugar. So, and then with some herbs like, or spices, I would put a little uh, cumin and a little cinnamon. And put that together and cook Cumin the cranberry. Cumin and cinnamon. Yeah, and I would cook that gently, and then I would take the cranberry out and use that in my cake because they would be a little bit softer. I'm not a big fan of tasting a cranberry just by itself in the middle of a cake because I find them always like, ah, you know, you could have done something a little bit more to that because cranberry by itself is not exactly the most pleasant thing in your mouth. But once you do a little syrup with some spices around it, you could even, you know, make your syrup as light as you want on sugar. And then, you know, just spice up the, the um, cranberry and soften yes. them down a little bit. So now they have flavor and by spice. When I'm doing food like that, I always prefer things like uh, uh, prunes or apricots, you know, where you can uh, actually get a distinct flavor. Right. And okay. the other one that you can't forget about, you know, is dried tomatoes. They oh, yeah. are sweet and savory yeah. at the same time. Uh, there's just a the natural sweetness when they're dried. I'm not talking about candied tomatoes, but just right. dried the sun-dried tomatoes can be sweet and savory. Anything dried and you've dried in the summertime can yeah. be used for those bread right now. That would dried be... tomato and black olives, like a Kalamata olive bread, would be... And then you That's put, and then you put the little, money. little anchovies on top before you bake. Anchovies <laughs> would be fun. A little fennel or fennel fronds in there I'm would, be, there. would be I'm delicious. I'm like, damn, I just had the pizza instead of breakfast. <laughs> well, that's, uh, what is that pizza called that they, they uh, have the anchovy and olive and tomato yes. on? Anchoyad. No, um... Oh, my God. I just lost it. Uh, me, too. Mm. Uh, so, anyway, so... The pizza uh, there. Yeah, pizza exactly. Ladere, thank you. Uh, enjoy your fall with some quick breads. Uh, be a little creative. It's not expensive. Yeah. If you mess one up, you know, use it uh, some other way. If you mess one up, you still will eat it, no matter yeah. what. <laughs> Start with pumpkin, though. That's what inspired the whole thing, a pumpkin right. bread. Pumpkin bread. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. No. Uh, When we come back, it's getting cheeky. We're going to get cheeky with it on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We're back. It's the Hot Stove Society show. Kamala uh, yeah. is listening to Taylor Swift. <laughs> Terry is uh, dreaming about his dinner down at the Single Thread down yeah. in Healdsburg, and I'm just carrying the business. Doing the work. Doing Thank the, God you're here. Doing heavy God, lifting Tom. here. Uh, I'm going to turn to Pam for this because she, she is nutty for cheeks. I will say I've, I love pork cheeks and beef cheeks, but I've never really gotten into the halibut cheeks or the cod cheeks. 
And the reason I would say is that what I have to learn to do with them is cook them in a different way. Because I think I don't braise fish very much. And I think the braising the cheeks of halibut or the cheeks of cod is very different than, say, grilling a filet. Yeah, and I think treating cheeks like you treat a piece of fish is absolutely wrong. It's just not, it's just not, um, not right because it's, it's, first of all, it's ten, tighter of a meat. Tighter and leaner. Leaner. So you don't want to treat it like a piece of fish. You want to, you want to treat it like uh, something you, like you're going to braise, like you're going to cook slowly. It's better to bake a cheek slowly than it is to sear it in a pan with just butter and like you would uh-huh. a piece of fish. I mean, it works, but it does I'm work, just talking about my preference. Yeah. It also gives you a piece of meat that is much tighter and, and tougher than if you braise it. So, Pamela, why are you into... I mean, you could afford and buy anything you want. Cheeks used to be a byproduct, but now they've become kind of this in thing. Why yeah. do you like them? I like them because they're fast, and uh, they feel light and healthy, and you can add any kind of topping to them. But I brought it up because 50% of the time... and. Uh, with halibut cheeks, I I mess it up, but I, I think it's because I'm sautéing them too fast in butter. I do have luck with broiling. I uh-huh. like broiling fish, yeah. but that's such uh, an East Coast thing. Broiling, you yes. don't hear that very much out here. No, I broil most of my fish, but this week it's because Shoreline Central Market had cod cheeks, mm-hmm. which I've never seen. And I think what makes a difference: these are small. Yeah, they're, they're, small. they're about yeah. the size of a silver dollar. Yeah, so. I feel like those I might be able to sauté successfully. Right. And I would treat them like you would treat uh, a scallop, where you seal them. Yeah. Opposite to what I was just saying. I was talking about a little chick before, which are much bigger. But those little ones, you can actually seal them and then put them in the oven for a couple of minutes on a, on a pan because you get your searing down. And then you and put then, them in yeah. the oven and finish them at 350 degrees for just a few minutes. And it cooks really fast. Cod happens to have a little bit more fat than halibut does because halibut doesn't really have any fat. So it's a lot easier to finish in the to sear first and finish in the oven. And it gives you a very tender cheek like you would a scallop. I saw the cod cheeks over at Wild Salmon Fish Market the other day, and they are no thicker than quarter inch. Oh, well, that, yeah. Were yours thicker than that? Yeah. yeah. Yours yeah. Are, how, how thick were yours? Oh, they're half inch? They're probably not quite an inch. Yeah. Oh, that's big. That's much yeah. different. Oh, really? Maybe mine had been butterflied or something, the ones that I yeah. saw. So. Yeah, usually they're about, that's about how thick. Yeah, that's, like a, that's how thick I think a halibut cheek is, which is about an inch thick. Right, but The these, cod cheeks are, I don't know. They're, they're, they're more, more fat. They're, they, cook, they cook differently for uh-huh. sure. But you can still braise them if you want to do a braise. Um, the problem is they're not that big, so they will cook really fast. Really fast. So what are you seeing on pricing? Is our halibut... When you're going to the supermarket or to the fish store uh, down at Mutual Fish, you'll see halibut at, say, $30 a pound. What are halibut cheeks at? Is it a more economical cut? Uh, no. Not They're in about gen- the same, huh? They're about the same. Yeah. Yeah. The cod was $10 a pound. So it's a... L- was you know I was getting salmon too, which is forty. <laughs> so I was like, well, you're buying expensive salmon. I bought a beautiful coho the other day for eight ninety nine a pound. Well, because uh, you're buying, but co- I was in the round. Well, you're buying coho. She's not buying coho. Yeah, white king. White yeah. king. Yeah. yeah, yeah, marble king. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. I overcooked it. 
<laughs> what? Maybe you should get a meat thermometer. Yeah, you know, I was going to say. Enough, it works on fish. I have one. But now let's no, go. No, no, but you got to use it. <laughs> That's, that was the problem. <laughs> I mean, the first step is to have one. The next step is to use it. <laughs> let's do pork cheeks now. Okay, I'm going to turn to Terry. So, uh, pork cheeks, uh, I'm a, I like to rub my pork cheeks with, you know, whatever. I like to give a little heat. Not too much, because you know I'm not... You know what that sounds like, Chef, when you said you like to rub my pork cheeks? Yes. Okay. Uh, right, rub the pork cheeks. Okay. And uh, rub the pork cheeks. And I like to give it a little sear in brown butter, and then finish them in the oven with just a little bit of white wine or red wine or uh, maybe chicken stock, if I have some chicken stock in the house. Put around the base of it. And, of course, I've got some sliced onion in there. Put that in the oven at about 350, and then cook them until they're totally tender, and I get meat thermometer, 160, 165 is when I'm going to pull out. Let it rest. Reduce the juice down. A little nugget of butter. And I got beautiful. So when you're buying those, Chef, are, you, um, are they pre-silvered? You know, because sometimes cheeks have some, it uh, some silver. But yeah, it, because you're cooking them well done, it doesn't make as much. It doesn't make as much difference. Because it's going to tenderize. If there is a silver skin on anything that I buy... I'm going to take the silver skin off. But you don't need to, like you know, the lamb shank or... A... I didn't say you need to. I okay. said I will. Okay. <clears throat> Mainly because I know how without, without taking three pounds of the meat off. Mm-hmm. So because I know, because I'm used to it, I can just take my, my knife, take that silver skin off and be, you know, it just be easier and just to me, it's like, I can, so I do. Right. But you don't, you're right. You don't have to. If you're going to cook something all the way. If you're going to braise it all the way, that'll like braise down. Like a leg of lamb and everything. You don't need to butcher a leg of lamb to the meat only which is ridiculous when I see that because I'm like, you're going to cook this thing all the way to the end. It's going to melt. It's going to be soft. It's going to be totally tender by the time you eat it. But if you're going to eat your leg of lamb medium or medium rare, you have to clean it if up. If you want it medium rare, it's not the cut you should use. Right. You should use a different cut. <laughs> you should use a point. rack of lamb. Yeah. It's the wrong cut. Okay, same thing with beef cheeks, right? They're about, for, from a pork cheek, would, would be about, if you wanted to think about it, the, it's not even... A cup size right. or so. A beef cheek would be more of a half pint size. It's bigger. Yeah. yeah. And same thing. I, I like, I mean, we used to do it's that. It's not something to serve rare. Oh, no. no. You have to cook that all the way. You can't serve even medium rare or medium. Is, cook it all the way. It's not that kind of meat. That kind of meat is meant to cook all the way. Mostly because you want it to be tender. You also want to get that braising flavor that you have in your pot and, you know, with your stock on the bottom or your wine, whatever you have. You want to acquire all that flavor through. Most importantly, you want it to be, it should be like a, almost like a fork out meat. You know, you take your fork and it's fork tender. You know, you just go right through it. So think of at the end of the day when you're doing a, if you're, let's just say you're used to using a seven bone uh, chuck roast uh-huh. for your pot roast. Right. Really, you can do exactly the same thing with beef cheeks. Right. And my guess is they're going to be half the price. A chuck roast is very expensive. That's what I'm saying. But the, I'm saying the beef cheeks would be half the price. Yeah. The only real difference is at the end of the day when you're done braising, the meat, if it's cooked all the way, it won't be. It'll still shred in more stringy. Correct. Kind and of like, scenario. So you want to cut it across the grain. Correct. Whereas with a pot roast, generally you don't have to think about it. Right. Yeah. Right. Now that's the only thing. Yeah, it's stringy in some ways, but makes great tacos. <laughs> I mean, you string that meat; it's fabulous for that. Or mm-hmm. you could do. You know, you could put it you in just soup. cut across the string. You cut, yeah. cut across, just like you do a flank steak. You cut right. across the right. grain. Yeah, and you can, uh, you know, the next day you can put some in soups. Like you can do a nice little bouillon and you know, like a broth, and put the beef in there or the pork in there. It's really a nice addition to the to the soup. Gives more flavor and a little texture. Put some vegetable and mushrooms in there. Be done. You have a wonderful soup on your hand. 
It's winter time. Let's start thinking about all these beautiful things. Exactly. <laughs> that but makes now us I'm a little confused because you're saying cook all the way. It's more than just the t- temperature. You're looking for a change in texture. Yes. Yeah. Too. The, the, so the like pot roast, but, right? But see, you've or always brisket. told me that my pot roast is dry and overcooked. So uh-huh. is it... Because well, there is such I, a thing as overcooked. Now, let's, can we just stop the show for a second? <laughs> I've always told you that your pot roast is. Over. How many times have you made me pot roast in your Probably life? Twelve. That's not even true. <laughs> I do think that what? there's ways to overcook your braised meats. Yeah, tell yeah. me when to stop because. Well, it's like it's like when you're cooking brick, uh, brisket or something. <laughs> there's a, a point when the the meat relaxes, right? It's been cooked. Long enough at a temperature that is suitable that the meat relaxes. And you can do a brisket on a you know, smoker for 12 hours, but it has to be at that 250 to 275 yeah, area. Sh- and then it will relax without braising for a second, right? So Lower temperature. Yeah. You can do a lower temperature. And then just the, the thing is it doesn't – I wouldn't say it gets dry so much as it uh, gets – Mealy and mushy in your mouth. It's overcooked. Right. You know what I'm saying? I think oh, yeah. a lot of people overcook That's right. their braised meats. You should still use your meat thermometer and use that as a guidance. So when you get to 165, you should definitely take your pot roast out. Let it sit. Let it sit. Be nice to it. Let it rest. It's been in the oven for a while. And don't, over go, don't go too high on heat. Because I think that's another mistake is you're not in a hurry to do that kind of braising. Right. You have to go slow. Because if you go slow... You're giving the, the meat a chance to actually cook on the inside, on the, to the temperature to get all the way on the inside slowly, as opposed to seal the outside, and then the heat is so strong, and by the time it gets to the center, the meat is way overcooked. So what, what temper are you braising at? Uh, you're, you're in a, like an, a, a, in a Dutch oven. In a Dutch oven in the oven? Yeah, yeah. 375. Yeah, that's too hot. Yeah, so it's too hot. 300, 325 at yeah, the very top. Exactly. I think that's... I lear- just learned something very important that's going to make a much more delicious winter. Just start an hour or two earlier. Yeah. And go and slower. So if you're Fire. trying to go home at 5.30 or 6 and then <laughs> make, make a, a pot roast, you're not in happening. trouble. No. I, I got an excellent idea. Use a tagine. Put it in the morning and then come back home at night. It'd be perfect. Low. There is an low. entire wall of choices at Wajamaya for so- soy sauce, right? There's an entire yeah. wall. Oh, yeah. Today we're going to uh, have Annie come on and tell us a little bit about the one she brought here today. And we're going to demystify the soy sauce aisle for you right here on the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Here we are. It's the hot stove. We're getting salty. First, we got cheeky. Now we're getting salty with it. This is a, a like an intimidation show. We're getting <laughs> yeah. salty with you, cheeky with you. Blah blah. I blah, wonder blah, blah. what's going to happen next. Yeah, we got grit. We got grit today. We get queasy. I'm Tom Douglas, and I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. Pamela Hinckley's on the mic over here producing, and Chef Annie Elmore, uh, the director here at the Hot Stove, is sitting in the hot seat. Annie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Will you tell people that you really do like me and that I really do like you? 
I love you. Uh, yeah. So with oh, this is all a good my morning. tiny little heart. <laughs> there you go. You are tiny. So Annie, you have uh, brought us some soy sauces here, and you know when I go to shop at Wajamaya, and I've, we've heard this from our listeners, from our customers, it's like how do you know what to <laughs> what to get? Because uh, soy sauces range anywhere from Kikoman, you know, which is I think made in Wisconsin, if I'm not mistaken. All the way up to this fancy cherry blossom shoyu that we have, which is so dynamic and delicious. But you wouldn't use those two in the same spot, right? Uh-huh. Uh, so tell us what you put here on the table and uh, kind of what they represent when it comes to soy sauces from around the world. To me, soy sauce is like a seasoning, you know, in a lot of things. It's add umami flavors to food um, and saltiness, of course. And of course, like depending on which soy sauce you use, it has a different flavor. So some going to be a lot sweeter, some going to uh-huh. be a lot saltier, some going to be a lot more intense flavor in soy, like dark soy or black soy, as opposed to light soy. Pam um, picked up all these soy here from, range from low sodium to black soy. We got sweet soy, gluten-free soy, really expensive, fancy one that Tom bought for one of his class. I don't know how much you pay for 30 that. bucks. Yeah. So, and I had a friend who went to Japan and bought me wide range of soy sauce before. Some of them were like $75 a bottle even. Yeah. And, and soy sauces are brewed, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know how like uh, balsamic vinegar is, you know, the expensive right, thing. Right. Yeah. So, for us, it's soy sauce. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on how long it ferment, how long it brew, or how it brews, small batches, big batches. The type of rice yeah. or, or soy, if it's polished or not. I mean, it's yeah. yeah. So um, one question that Pam asked me yesterday was, uh, what's the difference be- between the shoju and soy sauce? Mm-hmm. Uh, soy sauce is, some people use that, like those two terms, but they don't really know exactly what the meanings are. Uh, shoju is a Japanese style of soy sauce. Even though soy sauce was invented by the Chinese people, Mm -hmm. because they have been around a lot longer than Japanese people. So, of course, Japanese people always like to make their own thing and be more original. So they took that concept, but what they did was they used the um, sea salt, because they surrounded by the sea, that used to preserve the soy sauce, and they used koji in there for the fermentation, and they also used wheat to help adding that sugar content in Mm -hmm. there. So there's soy sauce supposedly a little bit sweeter than the Chinese soy sauce. So when you do go buy it, you want to look, you know, like, is it Japanese made or is it Chinese made? And you can look at the ingredients. Um, but here's the thing, like the Chinese one, a long, long time ago, originally when they made it, of course, they just crushed, uh, cooked the soybeans, crushed it, and then let it ferment and add lots of salt to it mm-hmm. for uh, preservative. Leave it in the sun in that container you have behind you. It's like a ceramic Mm -hmm. uh, in the sun. And the sun will help to, like, preserve it and break it down and turn it to soy sauce. But nowadays, because of the commercial, they need to, you know, up that production. Speed up the process, yeah. 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 So then they add wheat to it because the sugar helps. They did not originally have wheat. No. Okay. So, Yeah. So now they add a lot more wheat to it, and that will help to ferment a lot, you faster. know, brew a lot faster. Of course. So then what is, uh, where does tamari come in? 
I'm not sure okay. that one thing is is funny because well the thing oh has free, your, right? well here's no, the thing no wheat. yeah no yeah. wheat in it yeah right so originally as you see soy sauce is supposed to be gluten free because uh-huh. they don't use wheat in it so back in the old old day without wheat coming in handy and that's something that they did they just fermented and all brew it in the sun with the soy. Salt and water. That so was now it. you're Asian, but you're from mixed cultures, right? You're yes. Lao, Cambodian, Chinese. Are you Vietnamese too? Yes. Yeah. Is soy sauce used across Asia like we use salt? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but, but is it like every dish has it basically? Yeah, do you, or is well, it more of a table condiment? As you know, all the countries are very neighborly. Mm-hmm. Like so, depending on which. At country, some points they are. Yeah. Other times <laughs> yeah. they kill each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, back yeah, back in the days. But uh, depending where your border lines, um, that you're gonna marrying some of that flavor into your cuisine and use some of it in so, there. So you are gonna cook with it. Yeah. And then put it on the table also or. Well, not both. both, okay. Both, yeah. Which is what I love. This is why I like tamari about because I think tamari is more defined, more refined than so than all the soy sauce in general. You like tamari? Yeah, I think it's very refined. I don't know in terms of seasoning at the end, like dipping as a dipping sauce. To me, tamari is a lot more saltier because it, it doesn't have that wheat or that sugar added. Right. So when I go buy soy sauce, this is something that I'm more used to. I like a little bit of the sweeter side. So I always tend to look for one that has a little bit of sugar in it. But well, well you, you know, brought one today. Yeah. yeah. So what is that one that you love? You said you love that on rice. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, that is like a Malaysian, Indonesian. They they love using that in Sweet everything. Soy. Yeah. Very like on chicken on. It's um. You can't really cook with that because it's so thick. But it serves more like a marinade and or a dipping. It's called thing. ABC. That's the brand. Yeah. ABC sweet soy sauce. Yeah. And the first ingredient is sugar. Yeah. So and then there's soy extract and then there's more sugar. Yeah. And caramel. And like color. it's so thick that it like it's so nice to coat on things rather than mm-hmm. you know like. Regular soy sauce is very watery. It's harder to coat on things. So that's why you want to use black soy sauce if you need it to marinate um, anything to bring that color of soy out. Because sometimes if you just use regular soy, you can't really have that nice dark color in there. So there's this one dish that uh, in Chinese they call... um, uh, red pork. Red pork, yeah. 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 Red pork, yeah. And you need to have black soy to bring out that really dark, deep color. Mm-hmm. If you just use regular soy, you're not going to be able to see that. It just looks really bland. Right. Yeah. Right. But it doesn't really taste different because that dark, deep color is often literally an additive of caramel Car- color, caramel right? Yeah. yeah. So here's the thing. I, I read up on, on it last night about the black or dark soy as opposed to light soy. So the... The interesting um, thing that I read about was that the black or dark soy um, has more sodium content in them than the light soy, Uh right? But when you taste the black or dark soy, it tastes a little bit more sweet. Less saltier than the uh, less sodium one. It's because so it tricks you. Yeah. yeah. So it's because there's so much soy flavor in there. It overpowers the salt. Mm. So it kind of makes you think like, oh, I'm not eating a lot of salt. But right. yeah. But so then again, you know, the the light soy one because it's so light, you can taste the um, 
So I want to get to your recommendations before we run out of time. Uh, so if you were to have two soy sauces in your house, uh-huh. I mean, I, at home I have a preserved black bean soy. I have a mushroom soy. I've got all kinds of different soy sauces. Keep them all in the fridge, by the way, so that they don't oxidize yeah. too much. But if you were to pick, we have from Kikoman, which is in every American household, it seems yeah. like, all the way to this fancy Japanese cherry blossom soy, which... It would be a sin to use this anywhere, but where it comes out on its own. This yeah. is what I would But use. it's worth having, though. Right. I would use that with sushi. That would be a good, you know, a little mm-hmm. piece of fish dumped in there would be Yeah, fantastic. certain fish would be good with that. So what would you put in your household, Annie? So right now in my household, I have the ABC so that's for the sweet. sure. Mm-hmm. That's a sweet one. And then I don't use tamari. I, don't, I really don't like kikoman. Here's the thing. It's like all the soy sauce are different prices right you want to go a little bit more money like at least close to ten dollars or at least seven fifty around that price range mm-hmm. you don't want to go any less than that because you're just getting salt right so in that pr- uh, price range right there i would like to use the um, yamasa yeah, yeah that one is not bad for the price uh-huh. Okay, so, Chef, t- tell us the name that you're recommending so people know what to buy. I, at home, buy the Chinese Pearl River soy sauce. The one then, then you recommended, Sanjay? Sanjay Organic Shoyu, I think, is very delicate of a soy sauce. It's not... I mean, some of those sauces, are, to me, are way too salty. I mean, uh-huh. it's really hard to match for me in my, my style of eating. Uh-huh. It's hard to match. Even when I go to sushi restaurant, I don't dip in yeah. soy sauce. I just yeah, eat my neither. fish like that. So, Coming up in our second hour... We continue here from the hot stove at the Hotel Andre, and we'll dip into alcohol-based meat brines, the classifications of Beaujolais wine, and construction of an excellent cheese board. On Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Outside in and inside at your my meat. I am fat and party, but naughty, you're my meat. Here we are. We're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo. We're thankful that you're here. We've got another full hour of excitement and deliciousness. Uh, Pamela is going to t- break down Beaujolais for us. You know, she's a wine nerd. I don't know if you know that or about yes. her. Yeah, and her husband is a, a bigger one. A bigger wine nerd oh, than boy. she is even. Uh, she used to run the De Laurentiis wine shop when I met her 40-some years ago, so... Uh, she's been into wine for a very long time. Uh, it also makes her a little bit older than me, I think, because I wasn't even old enough to drink when I walked into the uh-huh. dealer at these I'm sure. Right. We're going to talk about boozy brines first off. Uh, we're going to finish the, the hour with uh, Food for Thought Tasty Trivia. We're going to talk a little bit about Beaujolais. The last thing. A delicious cheese board. Oh, a delicious cheese with board. With the right knife. How do you Don't forget it? that. Yeah, I want to know the balance thing because I can't, I don't like when I go to a get a cheese board that's all cow cheese. Right. Right? I, I want some balance and I want some texture difference. I'll so tell you my pet we're gonna, when we get to that segment. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Uh, but let's jump right into boozy brines because uh, people are starting to think about brines for their turkey. Uh, I have brined over the years many times. Uh, I don't brine anymore. I don't feel like it does much for me. Um, oh. Yeah, I'm not a briner when it comes to like the big salt brines, but I've never tried boozy brine outside of, say, wine. I've never like brined in beer. I've never brined in a Manhattan or in a martini. And I think that's not necessarily what you're saying, but you're talking about taking maybe leftover cocktails and creating a little concoction out of that 
as part of a brine. I guess we're all going to have to go to Pam to get the leftovers of cocktail because <laughs> in my house I have never seen one. So, so Pam, you found us on Serious Eats, yep. uh, which is a fabulous website. Fabulous. That's where uh, my friend Ed Levine started that website maybe 10 or 12 years ago, 15 now maybe. You're probably 20. Yeah. And Kenji Lopez-Alt came from Serious yep. Eats, who's a very popular, well-known, uh, smart food scientist, I would say, in a bit, because he's always doing the lab. He's got that book, Food Lab. Uh, so what intrigued you about this? That you could build and add another element of flavor. Um, it started with different ciders, which will appeal to you, Terry. That's interesting. Yeah, um, yeah I think, I, think uh, I was when you said beer, I was like, well, cider right now, this time right. of year, raw cider to use as a brine. As a brine. Fantastic. Yes. You're going to do a roast beef. Like pork cheeks, like you were talking about. Pork cheeks, yeah. something of that nature, like a big roast. And cabbages and apples. You put the whole thing together in the oven together, brined. Oh. So you say raw cider, and I don't want to get too far off on this because it's only one angle that we want to tackle today. But to me, when I'm, that's going to add too much sweetness to the dish I'm going to make. No, Whereas no. maybe a dry cider, one that's been uh, fermented to dry. That's what I mean by raw cider. I mean one that's not sugar added, okay, not so sweet like a... So it's a different kind of apple too. It's like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm okay. talking about okay. a, a something that's really acidic and not... And that is alcoholic and that has no sugar in it. So it's not sweet to drink. A real raw, that's what I call raw cider. Maybe well, it's got sugar in it. Apples have sugar no matter no, how tart they are. Obviously, but yeah. not added. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, treetop or whatever, those, those kind of. They don't, yeah, I don't think they have apple. sugar added. It's just an apple variety. Well, we want to be sure before we say that on so the So what <laughs> I want is a very acidic, uh, alcoholic, not sweet apple cider raw, not been pasteurized. Which is basically taking apple and fermenting them and, you know, get the juice out of That's that. so flavorful. Very, very flavorful. And, and usually, as the, the type of apple are usually the smaller apple, very, very, not the kind you can eat easily because they're acidic. And they produce this beautiful apple flavor. So you take that and you brine your roast in that uh, just overnight, especially if you have like a five-pounder uh-huh. overnight in that brine. And in the brine, you can add also spices or herbs. Bay leaf is always a great marriage with apple. Uh, I'm using that as an example. So you go in a, in a, I go in my tree or in my laurel bush, whatever you call that, and then cut down quite a few leaves and then crush them and then put them in the cider. Cracked peppercorn and toasted coriander. So put all that together and then put it overnight, drain the, the roast the next morning, and then use that brine that doesn't have any salt in it. It's just cider. It's only cider that's in there. So the next, you can use that cider to be able to make the sauce braising liquid for your roast. So take the roast, pat it super dry, give it a nice little sear in brown butter. I love doing that. That's the way I like to do my braising. And then sliced onion, sauteed in that same butter. Put everything into the, into the liquid in the pan. Put the roast right in there. Put that in the oven and cook it very slowly, like 300, 325 for as long as it takes until your meat is totally cooked. Then you take that braising liquid, reduce it down even more a little bit, and then add a little chicken stock or some kind of stock like that. Nugget of butter, and you get this wonderful... And on the side... All right, I just have to... We're trying to get to a... A cocktail brine here. Okay, go ahead. That was my cocktail brine. Thank you. <laughs> Cider cocktail. Well, that uh, was the next part of the article is when you think about what you could build with a cider brine, why not take that one step further with a cocktail brine? Cause the Manhattan the co- brine. Yeah. The Manhattan brine, you can build out 
Like you did other spices, the one that caught my attention was the Moscow Mule because of the ginger. Right. Oh. And I thought ginger would be a great element in a brine. And I love everything about a Manhattan. Well, Manhattan's <laughs> got sweet vermouth, which is sweet. full of different but herbs and stuff like that. Botanicals. Botanicals, yeah. Now, the thing is, you have to be careful with raw booze because that stuff is really strong, meaning that it will eat through the meat very fast. So you don't want to do, if you normally do a, 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 a cider for 24 hours, you certainly don't want to do brandy for 24 hours. It will have a different results. You might end up with a pasty meat because it's already well, a, too a, broken Well, a Manhattan down. is one ounce of bourbon, you know, one ounce of sweet vermouth, some bitters, you know, or two and two. So it's not 100% booze. But well, would I think you the idea it is with that stock, maybe? With stock? Well, or would that change the, take the Manhattan-ness out of it? I wouldn't dilute it with stock. No, I, do, I would no. just not brine it as long. That's all. Shorter. Yeah. And right. one of the good ones is prune. You know, people don't use enough prune, I think, in their life. You know, dry plum. And then you marinate them in Armagnac for a few hours until they totally absorb that, that booze. And then you cook that with your uh, tagine of lamb. Put the, the prunes all around the, uh, the lamb, the pieces of lamb with the vegetables in there. Oh, man, when that tagine is ready which cooks very slowly for many hours, those prunes are like totally melting in your mouth. And oh. There's some that I would be concerned about. Let's say you have an extra Negroni that's got a lot of Campari in it, uh, whereas when you cook it, it might be a little bit like hops when you cook with hops. Yeah. The that bitterness. it might get too bitter. You know, yeah, some, not all booze some are. Some Amaros might not work. Right. Not all booze are created equal. You want a booze that has flavor, that is as simple of a product as possible. Because if you, like Tom said, if you had a lot of Campari or beer or anything like this, that would definitely impair the flavor of your meat. So, But the gin with the juniper would yeah. be nice. Very nice. And what kind of meat, though? Chicken thighs. I mean, any, anything. I would do it would with be... sausages. Marinate it's, a sausage? Well, you take the sausage and you just cook it and then finish the sauce in the pan with your gin. Make like a gin sauce where you do toasted, toast, <laughs> toasted juniper. Just be careful you don't burn all your hair off. <laughs> toasted, <laughs> toasted juniper. Crush them. Put them in the gin. Reduce the whole thing down, a little nugget of butter, so you have a very strong uh, juniper flavor. What's the, Toulouse, what's the sausage from France that's got a little juniper? Is it, it's not Toulouse, right? Uh, the t- Toulouse doesn't have, no, doesn't have a strong French juniper. There's sausage that's got a juniper kind of profile to it. That would be good with gin. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, there's all kind of different ways to use them. So, All right, when we come back, it's time to learn your Beaujolais labels. Uh, from Nouveau to Fleury, They're, they go all over the map. On Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. It's so cozy in the kitchen with the smell of rabbit stew. Time for Beaujolais Nouveau out there, folks. And uh, today we're going to have a little primer course on what to look for in all sorts of Beaujolais. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And Pamela Hinckley, our producer, who is a Beaujolais expert, is going to kind of guide us through uh, what Beaujolais is and all the different towns of Beaujolais. I think there's five major towns, if I'm not mistaken. I love how you became an expert at this right now. She is an expert. I'm not. I'm not. I'm an enthusiast. You're an enthusiast. Okay, same diff. So first first of all, where is Beaujolais? 
south of Burgundy and arguably part of Burgundy um, administratively, but not as far as the Appalachian controlly laws are concerned. Correct. Okay, so she's not an expert. Okay, a northern, give me a break. Northern Rhone um, area, yeah. 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 So um, this is the time of year when you'll see... The Beaujolais Nouveau, the third Thursday of November, is the typical time uh, that the vignerons race to get Beaujolais Nouveau out into the world. And in my mind, um, it is not the best representative of the region or the potential of the Gamay grape. Which no, it's is, a great marketing, though. It's a marketing device <laughs> that George Duboeuf gets all the credit for. Because Beaujolais has gone through undulations of popularity. And quality. And quality. Right. It's like our beloved Chianti when it had the unfortunate days in the straw fiascos. Yeah, and, right. and people started to think that that was the wine of the region and there's been a lot of inferior Beaujolais shipped to the United States but if you learn how to read the labels and pay attention um, you're going to end up with a magnificent bottle of wine so so will you explain before we go off into the other ones what Nouveau is I mean that's fresh it's very fresh it's a very fast carbonic maceration. Yeah, it's not finished uh, to ferment, actually. Right, and it's it's whole cluster, just the weight of the grapes. So it kind of in ferments internally within the grape and gives off a lot of gas. And it, it's not pressed with the skin to pull out the tannins. Right. So it's juicier. And, and it's, it's this year's crop, right? It's, it's like, yeah. it's months oh, old. Oh, it's, it's, it's just a week. It's a few weeks, weeks old. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, six weeks from yeah. probably when it's picked to when you get to drink it. Right. But it uh, it's lively and fun and fruity. And can be a little frizzante. Sometimes yes. there's captured gas yeah. from the fermentation. I um, With some friends, I actually wrote a play about it. And the race, get, remember when they sent it over on the Concorde? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah, because uh, they became Concorde grape. <laughs> oh! <laughs> but the real Beaujolais, the Bo- you'll see that, so there's an administrative organization to how you label wine in Europe that most wineries follow, the Appalachian Controlly in France. And the designations for Beaujolais could be Beaujolais. AOC, Appalachian Controlly, so that means grapes are from all over. It's like village, kind of. And then Beaujolais Village yep. would be the next one. So then you've got a more constrained, uh, lower yield, uh, higher uh, fruit extract. And then the cream of the crop are the crews, the right. designated villages. The CRUS. CR, yeah, thank you. And... Uh, Tom, we share, I think, affection for Morgon and Moulin Avant, but Terry, you've probably had more Beaujolais than well, there, both of there us is, combined. Yeah, and like you explained, there's different layers of structure and, and, and of richness in some ways. I mean, to me, the, the Morgon and the Moulin Avant are the, probably some of the top one of richness and quality in terms of Beaujolais. But there are, you know, like Fleury can produce some very outstanding, there is some outstanding vineyard in Fleury as well that produces beautiful wines. The Moulin Avant, I could age probably up to 10, 15 years. The Fleury, I probably would keep for 5, 6, 7, 80 years, depends on the one. And then as you go down, like you said, to the village, 
uh, you know, a couple of years. It's meant to be drunk fairly quickly. Sooner, yes. So <clears throat> those, those wines are less complicated in terms of texture and flavor. But they all have their purpose, I think. You know, Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, we were talking about braising meat. You know, once you start to get to that level, I would go a, a good village would be perfectly fine with a good braised meat. You just have to pick your winemakers and your, you know, your designation. But in general, that could be a perfect wine to match with that. The well, I think in general, <coughs> um, people should learn about Beaujolais because of their versatility right. with food pairing and the lower tannins as a result right. of being from Gamay. So that's think, just a natural Gamay trait is yeah, low right. tannin. Yeah. I think Gamay in general, the way they're treating them in the Rhone Valley, is probably one of the most diversified food wine. Yes. It goes with just about everything. Salmon? It, and we Anything. often talk about, like, a perfect Thanksgiving wine is a Beaujolais. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it goes yeah. with everything. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. Roast meat, anything. And it's also a great wine to have to please everybody if you have an audience. You know, if you have a little group of, like, six, eight, ten people who are not necessarily, you know, as, ex- as knowledgeable about wine or whatever, or don't have a palate quite extended, it's a good wine to get across. One of the first traits of Gamay is usually fruit. So it's a very pleasing you know, it's, it's easier and more accessible for most people, especially when they're starting to learn about wine. And I think the character of the fruit of Gamay, as Tom pointed out, uh, can survive stuffing yeah. and all the pumpkin-y, squashy things that Spices. are... It's still acidic enough to cut through but gravy. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So. Yeah, and that's the other trace. The reason it's uh, edible, I mean, it's an edible wine is because... It's got the acid to balance it out. You know, the other, I think the other one that comes to mind in France is the Cabernet Franc of the Loire Valley. Yes. The Chinons. Chinons. The wine like that. You know, those are food wine because they match with a lot of things. But I think Beaujolais in general, because it's not quite as big as Chinon, they have a more pass through just about any kind of match you want to make. Another you know, great like, thing is that they're they're priced reasonably. Right. Yeah. Even, even the high end, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, the crew ones. What can you expect to pay? Uh, the nice ones now are thirty-five, forty for mm-hmm. the cruise, and, but you could get a great Beaujolais Village for twenty. Twenty yeah. bucks, yeah. You know, and that. Yeah, and buy a Magnum for Thanksgiving. Feed everybody with that. It's a great wine to use for that purpose. Yeah, yeah. Go so. see Mike. Go see Mike at Pike and Western. And yeah, Pam's <laughs> husband has Pike and Western wine shop. But you know, that's a good point uh, that uh, Terry just made, which is the Magnum because it really fits the occasion. Yeah, when you've got Thanksgiving and maybe ten, fifteen people around, a couple of Magnums is really festive. Uh, yeah. Magnum of Morgon, and yeah. I'm a happy girl. Yeah, first yeah. you have to start with the Magnum of Champagne. <laughs> like, she, starts, <laughs> yeah. she starts with the Magnum of Morgon. I'm like, yeah, start with the Magnum of Champagne. Well, a Magnum of Morgon, you were right. It's you know, it can you can get it for fifty, sixty bucks. A magnum, yeah. which is two bottles, right? So yeah. that's very reasonable in the world of wine. Correct. Yeah, it's very reasonable and delicious, and you will have an audience that will enjoy it, so, which is the other part, you know, because not everybody enjoys a Pinot Noir from Burgundy. That's two hundred dollars. Sam, give people a couple of brands to look for that they could find down at Pike Western, or even at their local grocery. I can't do that. I don't have a memorized. I say go go to a wine merchant that can guide you through. And there's, there's a couple out there that I really like. The, the one the guy I trust a lot is Kermit Lynch. So if he's the negotiant. Yeah, the, yeah and importer. He brings, he brings a lot of Beaujolais in. So look Correct. for him as the negotiant on the back of the label. The importer. Th- he might even have his own label at this point. I don't even know. But, but yeah, she's what's right. the one, the Puy? There's more... ask, ask your, your wine guru. Go, yeah. go, go have a wine guru. 
You need one in your life. And, and learn how to read wine labels. Correct. It's really important yeah. to understand and the fun. Euro- and fun. Yeah. The European labeling system. Order of Saint Amour, if you're just two of you for Thanksgiving. Ooh. It's a gorgeous name. <laughs> and, it's beautiful, and it's a beautiful Beaujolais. All right. So coming up next, we're going to build a cheese board that might go with that Beaujolais. Absolutely. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Swiss and cheddar in fondue. I like a chunky chunk of cheese. Fontine is fine when I dine. Good is good, provolone's divine. I like a chunky chunk of cheese. Okay, we're going to do some cheese here. We've been cheeky, we've been salty. Now we're going to get a little cheesy. We go Beaujolais, too. That's right. Uh, I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. Our producer, Pamela, was uh, reading the website Food 52. And was enamored with, uh, well, she loves a cheese board. I love one, cheese. One of the things when we travel together is we start a cheese board. Uh, the first day that we get there, we go to the local market. And even if we're in Hawaii, we do it. Uh, but, uh, and then we just build on it for the rest of the vacation. So, uh, so I have a question before we go any further. Do you put charcuterie on your cheese board or do you add other things besides cheese on your cheese board? Besides the garnish for the cheese? Uh, generally... Uh, I put it one salami on it. It's not a meat board. It's not a charcuterie board. Okay, but so... Uh, oftentimes, I'll put one salami on it. I, that's such a pet peeve of mine. I, it's like, if you Google cheese board, I, th- I did that not too long ago. All the pictures that were coming up were like charcuterie, have charcuterie, and I have cheese. I'm like, wait, a cheese well, board... Sometimes I put an, an almond on there, too, or an olive. It's not correct. an olive board. No, but it's <laughs> a cheese board. You're garnishing it so it goes with the okay, cheese. Okay, let's Tom. build a cheese board for Thanksgiving. Let's start there. And uh, so I'm going to jump right into my first pet peeve, which is, uh, Terry's obviously got one or two, uh, is I, I like a mixture of animals and textures. Uh, that's so exactly who how wants you should... to start down that road? I'll start. Uh, let's build a board between the three of us. Okay. And you pick a cheese, and then we're going to start to build on top of that. I've got goat. I got sheep. you start then? You, you start. I like uh, an aged goat. And like a, a boucheron kind of age, yes. Okay, and and a fresh creamy goat. So my, I'll I will probably have more goat and sheep than cow okay. on my board. But w- you have to name names. You like? Oh, uh, what's you the want fog? names? What's the fog one down um, from California? Humble, Humble fog. fog. You like so that one? Good. I like yes. that a lot. Oh, yeah. So good. Humble fog is a delicious. And cheese. that's hundred percent. Does that have an ash rind too? I want to move there. I know you do. <laughs> She's always wanted to open a hippie enclave out there on that peninsula. Point like, raised. Point I'm sure, raised. I'm sure there's plenty of room. Yeah. I went down there and it's like I had to drive to Santa Rosa to get You had to go. To get uh, internet. I had to drive an hour and a half to get internet when I went. I'm never going back there again. No. We had no TV and no internet. He was going crazy. We had cheese Okay, though. so we're going to start with Humboldt Fog. Do you want to add a cracker to that? Do you like a certain? Oh, I do. Want I don't it. like that on baguette. Personally, no. It, like need, a it needs a, a crisp, a really yeah. thin crisp. Which one I would, would you? do? I would do something like a hard pear, like oh. a pear that is not like, for example, a um, a commis pear that is not totally ripe. Just just a, a day, a, a day idea. or two before it's tender, and I would use that and slice that and put that cheese on top. Okay, our first cheese is humble fog. It's kind of a firm, uh, probably no more than eight week aged. 
goat yeah. cheese from yeah. the uh, from the peninsula and Point Reyes down there. Okay, you, you're next. I'm gonna go uh, sheep. I love sheep cheese. Larzac, which is a southern kind of France um, cheese, built like a, almost like a pyramid with ash in the middle. So when you cut through that cheese, you get that brownish kind of ash uh-huh. layer in the middle, and it's aged. It's got mold on the outside and aged. And by the way, I eat all of it. The, the, the rind and everything. Everything. And it's L-A-R-Z-A-C? Yeah, exactly. Larzac. It's a, region, it's a pretty poor region of France, and they have lots of sheep. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, the, the cheese is very scrumptious. It's about, I would say, two months old, mm-hmm. maybe even a little bit more. So it's got, it's got creaminess, but it also has a little bit of tightness in the middle. Oh. And what are you serving that with? A cracker, baguette, what? Well, the pear was the idea when I started, but I'm going <laughs> to use something else. I, I would do a, a country, you know the bread you have at the bakery across the street? Mm-hmm. The, 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 the facetti? Yeah. No, 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 no. no, no. The country loaf. The country, oh, the country loaf. loaf. Oh. Yeah. A slice of that really well grilled. Okay. so Because the smokiness would go beautiful with the ash and the richness of that mold that's on the outside. Oh. I would be like a hog in heaven. All right, so I'm going to go now. I'll jump in the cow cheese. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go local. I like the Beecher's uh, four-year-old and older flagship yeah. because it has some of that crystallization that I love, like in good Stravecchio uh, uh, Reggiano yeah. Yeah. or things like that. I love that that kind of aged cheese. And I'm going to go right on a Beecher's cracker. Yeah. You might as well get both while you're at it. Absolutely. Okay, Pam. Your, your turn. We've got goat. We've got sheep. We've got a, one cow, but it's a hard cow cheese. Got to have the best piece of Parmesan you can buy. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, 36 months. 36 months from that. I can't think of that, that red cow one that mm-hmm. De Laurentiis has. It's about $50 a pound, but it, it, it transports you. And it has that granularity and creamy mm-hmm. at the same time. So just to remind like, our listener... $50 a pound. You don't eat a pound of cheese, so no. let's make sure and we to me, I don't scale them. That cheese you don't eat with anything. No. no. Savor that cheese on its no. own as if one bite. If anything would be the best extra virgin olive oil, just a little drizzle no. on top. No. Don't do it. Oh, no. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't do well, it. That should be eaten on its own. Okay, you're up next. We've okay. got two cows, a goat, and a sheep now. Well, I'm going to have to go with a blue. Yes, somebody <clears> needs a blue. And I'm going to have to go to England mm-hmm. to have the best fresh Stilton you can possibly put your hands Colston on. Colston Bassett. Perfect. From Neil's Yard. Yeah. Yeah, it's really Perfect. good. Perfect. And <clears throat> what do you have that with? Well, I would actually put my blue, and I know Tom's going to go crazy with that, um, a thin piece of toast, uh, a, piece, a piece of bread thin that's been pan fried, and then I put a little puree of marinated, brandied, uh, dried apricot, uh-huh. and I puree that very thinly and put just a little layer on that cracker on that toast, and then put the blue right on top mm-hmm. of that. I had apricot in my head, but I didn't have it on toast, so it sounds delicious. Yeah, just so I can hold the whole thing together. And that, <laughs> that, all the Stiltons are cow's milk, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the, the blues out of France can be sheep's milk. Oh, yeah, milk, there is like, sheep blues that are absolutely yeah. fantastic. Okay, so my last cheese, there's only enough time for us to have two cheeses. We have to have some sort of triple creme. Correct. And uh, <laughs> my favorite used to be the Mount Townsend Creamery right yeah. across yeah, the yeah. water here. And then they, really? they had the Cirrus, and it was local. It was six weeks old, and it was perfect. And then they just went out of business. Oh, is that right? Be, I want to say about a year before COVID, they went out of business. Or maybe oh. during COVID. I can't remember. I could have swear I but, bought some. So, oh. Chef, what I need from you is a name of a perfect 
triple creme out there, and we all know Mundo. about San Andre, right? Mundo. Mundo. How do you spell oh it? M-O-N-T, which is Mundo. Oh, Montor. Do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and stuff, man. That is I mean, is you take dangerous. that with a, almost with a spoon. You do take it with a spoon. <laughs> it's like... It's like a poisse. Yeah. Yeah. It's, except it doesn't stink like that as much. But it's so delicious. I mean... It's hard and to find, too. It's very hard. Well, yeah, you need to be... And in the States, You yeah. need to go in France to eat that. They don't come here. Can you tell somebody something local, a triple creme local? You can find a poisse, but to me, you have to buy it at least two weeks before Thanksgiving. Because yeah, it's never least, ripe enough. Yeah, and by the way, a poisse comes out in the late spring. Oh, in late, late spring. Uh-huh. That's when they... Oh, mid, early summer. That's when they make them. So you want to have it not too much later than Thanksgiving or, you know, because it's not a cheese that you want to keep around forever. What about that Marshallan? I think it's Marcelin. called. It, it, Marcelin, comes, yeah. it comes in a little clay pot. Sure. That's delicious as well. It's and delicious. That's, and the pots are fun to collect. They yeah. make great ramekins. <laughs> Just keep eating the cheese. You'll have a whole collection yeah. of pots. And for that, I would definitely do a baguette. And you yeah. don't need to toast it. It's just slice baguette for fresh. a big, big, fresh triple creme. Mm. I tell you, cheeses is, uh, it's hot. When, you, when we were in France not too long ago, you know, you go in those stores, even stores that are like Walmart idea, you know, big store, and you see the cheese collection, it's like 150 cheeses. And it's crazy. I mean, you're like, oh my God, it's hard to stay away. Okay, so we have uh, three cows, uh, two of them, one's hard, yeah. one's soft, the triple creme, right. and one is the Stilton. Correct. Right? Uh, we have one goat. The uh, Boucheron, or what else did you say was? Yeah, Boucheron. Uh, a fresh chef. Uh, just like. a fresh chef, too. Yeah. Okay. And we have a Larzac. And, we, and a Larzac, which is a sheep's milk sheep. pyramid yeah. with ash. Yeah. And then we have lots of little things. A favorite nut. And by the way, the, fa- the favorite Larzac in Washington State is from the Montelier in uh, Dayton, Washington, right outside the Walla Walla. Ah. Good. Best Larzac in the state. Go buy it. Oh, it's so a Larzac problems. style, right? Because it can't be Larzac. Right. That's true. You know what they call it? Uh, no. No, okay. That's great. <laughs> I don't know what they call it. <laughs> Sorry. All right. It's time for Rub With Love, Food for Thought, Tasty Trivia. Uh, Chef Annie Elmore is going to rejoin us at the mic. And uh, I would say we are going to cut her down to size, but she's pretty tiny already. Uh, on yeah, Camera Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, cheese. 97.3 FM. I like cheese. I like cheese. I like, I like cheese. I like cheese, cheese, I like cheese, I like cheese, I like, I like cheese, I like cheese, I like cheese, I like cheese, I like, I like cheese, I like cheese, cheese, I like cheese, I like cheese, I like, I like cheese, I like cheese, I like cheese. Welcome back. It's time for the Rub with Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. Our Spice Rub family has grown now to 20 different varieties. We can help you doll up about any dish. Uh, our rubs and sauces and mustards are available all over the place, including the Fairway Meat and Grocery in St. Louis, Missouri, Jensen's Finest Foods with locations in Palm Springs. There's a Jensen's in Wilmington, Delaware that carries uh, my rub also. Nice. And uh, if you're in the Portland area, we're going to be down there. Carol and I are going to be down there this coming Saturday, so a week from this Saturday, the 12th, uh, and also here in Seattle on the 19th for... What's it called? Gobble, Gobble up. Gobble it's an up. urban craft uprising and premier food show. So Carol and I are going to be down there sampling our rubs at the convention center at the, at the Alder Block in Portland on Saturday, November the 12th. So if you live in that area, come say hi and stuck up for the holidays. You can search the hours and locations by Gobble Up. By Gobble Up. 
Chef Annie Elmore, a formidable challenger, is going to take us on today. We have no one in the audience for a prize, so I'm going to ask... Oh, we're going to send a prize to one of our listeners today. So, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm going to ask that we send a prize to one of our listeners today. (laughs) Oh, God. Prescient. Uh, Pam, you're the moderator, and would you tell us how to play, and who is going to win? This week, I use the incredible Oxford Companion to Food uh, for the inspiration in my questions, and they are insightful. And the prize is going to be a rub trio sent to Stephen Fair because he's told us an emotional story about Beaujolais Nouveau. Oh. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. Why didn't we share that? Is it too emotional? It's emotional. Okay. Um, so the, each of the contestants gets five questions, starting okay. with Mr. Rotaro. Go right ahead. What is the name of the Greek sauce that uses lemon and eggs beaten into a hot liquid? Eggs and lemon beaten into a hot sauce? Into a hot, a hot, liquid. hot liquid. Hot liquid. Use lemon to help guide you. I can't help you there, chef. I'm, 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 uh, I'm drawing a blank on... Or maybe the soup sometimes has a similar name. Are you just going to tell them? Avgo Lemono. I give up. What is it? Avgo Lemono. Avgo Lemono. Number two. I learned something here. Look at that. I love <laughs> I'm that. I'm going to make that for you. No, of course. What is the most traditional bean used in cassoulet? <laughs> the most traditional bean is the there's only one ranch in California and they were out for a while and the bean is starts with an H isn't this dish is from your country chef <laughs> no I don't think so I think it's from uh, I think that was a shot over the bow right there chef. <laughs> Herico no that's Arico is the translation for bean <laughs> Herico bean it's right here Right there in the Oxford Dictionary. It's an English okay. dictionary. What do they know about? <laughs> okay. what, what do you <laughs> use in Cassoulet? No, there's actually... He a, was trying to think of the name. I was trying so to I. think of the type of beans, which is what I was, thought you were looking for. There's a, actually a specific bean to the Carcassonne area that is used in Cassoulet. It, so it doesn't matter. Number three. Would you <laughs> serve consomme hot or cold? Hot, of course. The companion says either is acceptable. I yeah, want Of course hot. it is, but hot is better. I you think hot is better. The hot is better. <laughs> what is the name for the fr- what is the French name for the sweet meat composed of a nut or some other center that is coated with layers of hard sugar? <laughs> Tom, why are you covering your face? It's no. gonna be hard today. I know I know that one too, but starts with a D. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, let's move on. Okay, move on. Drage. That's, not, that's, that's where I was going, so that's good. Uh, what solution is used to soak fish to pre- prepare the famous Norwegian dish, lutefisk? Uh, salt and water. Lie. Lie. Mm-hmm. That's a lie. <laughs> I think that's an offer is what I've that made, is. I've made lutefisk before. You have? <laughs> but never, never with you lie. You didn't use lie? No. Then you probably didn't make lutefisk. You're not the winner today. I would say not the winner today at all. One out of five. That's ridiculous. I didn't even think you got one. But yeah. No, no the consummate counts. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just because I love him. Oh, look him. at her. She's Just because I love yeah. him. She's, okay, go uh, Annie, how do you make dashi? Sweet, sweet question. Uh, it is kombu, bonito, and water. Thank you. What is uh, the Philippine cooling snack called halo halo? It is shaped ice. With what? Uh, fruit and syrup. Yep. Woohoo! Number three. 
<laughs> what is the name of the dish made with egg, milk, and flour in a batter that traditionally accompanies roast beef in Britain? I think you have to also say beef tallow. Personally. Yeah, beef that's tallow, yeah. That's what it's dumped into. And, it, and it's, it's very classic to see it with a roast beef. It's on the side. They don't put soda in it, do they? Sometimes Dumpling? they, sometimes they <laughs> serve it in Cambodia. Sometimes it's very popular in Cambodia. <laughs> everybody, has, everybody has it in Cambodia. I was looking for Yorkshire pudding. Oh, yeah, definitely did not get that. <laughs> True or false? Zebra flesh is one of the tenderest and most flavorful of all game meats. False. It's true. Really? They yeah. run so fast. <laughs> and finally, what forms of tamarind are available for culinary uses? Well, there's several of them. There's in concentrate liquid, there's paste, and also whole fruit. Thank you. Correct. Woo-hoo! Whoa. Look at that. Three out of five. Good job. You're in the lead by a lot. In the lead. <laughs> You're in the lead by twice as much as me. Hi, I'm just trying not to go over. What is the name of the Italian dried beef that is served sliced very thinly with a drizzle of olive oil? Brasola. Yes. What country developed get shut out. kakaliki <laughs> soup? It sounds Hawaiian or, or uh, kakaliki. Kakaliki? It sounds uh, Samoa. I'm going to go with Samoa. It is from Scotland and consists of chicken and leeks. <laughs> different region. <laughs> different leeking. Completely different region. Continent. Different continent. Different ocean. You were close. Why do some cuisines use monosodium glutamate? Because it's delicious. <laughs> exactly. And it makes you high in a different kind of way. It does make you high. Uh, why do some countries use it? It's a natural ingredient. Honestly, people don't realize that it's a naturally occurring ingredient because it enha- enhances flavor like salt does. Exactly. A uh, flavor-enhancing compound that makes the tongue more receptive to salty, savory taste. Some people um, are allergic to it. Number four, what is considered the most delicious part of the tarantula body? All of it is delicious. <laughs> you just have to be picky and eat the best one. I'm going to say uh, the um, lungs. <laughs> I would say the legs. Um, yeah, I'm going to say the, the legs, The inside too. of the legs, like a crab. It's the abdomen, eaten raw, tastes like raw potato mixed with lettuce, and is especially nutritious with a 60% protein content. And finally, what is the benefit of the nixtamalization process on maize? Personally, I love the perfume that it gives, right? It, it, when you... When you nixtamalize, it's what they do, uh, corn for tortillas or hominy or, or whatever. So the benefit, of maybe, is it tenderizes it and it makes it digestible. Correct. Wow. Uh, after soaking and cooking with lime or wood ashes, the skin can be removed uh, from the grain and makes it easier to grind. But more importantly, it enhances the protein value for humans. So, there you have it. Oh, fine, three. Fine. Both of you have right, three. So, Annie and I tied, and since I'm bigger than you, I win. <laughs> Tom, wow, really? We're playing by size? We won't, go, by we size. won't go where I was. Well, if I sit on you, you're Thank toast. Thank you, Annie. So, so, Pam, tell us our winner again. Stephen Fair. Congratulations, Stephen. And if you email Pamela, you can pick out the three rubs you want in your gift box. That's what we have a new, nice. a new gift box uh, that can do that. If you want to be part of the show, you can... Watch the taping on YouTube at Tom Douglas and Company live on Thursdays now or buy a ticket to come to the show at thehotstovesociety.com. 
Uh, you're listening to us on Cairo. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley. Sound and production by Sean McFadden. And our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. And remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. 